episode of the story of the six, the young guru Gobind Rai sets up a magnificent court that is the catalyst of a renaissance in poetry, music, and scholarship. He himself composes sublime poetry, and his court is studded with accomplished poets, musicians, and scholars. I'm co-producer Erica Wong. Before we begin the episode, we have a favor to ask of you. If you find this work compelling, please be sure to rate it and write a short review. That will definitely help us get the podcast to a wider audience. Sri Kalgidhar Nandpur Bilsat Bahut Vilas Jit Kit Teh Boho Guni Nar Sun Jas Avat Paas in his town, Anandpur, there is much joy and mirth. From far and wide come worthies, eager to prove their worth. Word had started to spread about the Guru's magnificent court in Anandpur. The young Guru already had a reputation for being a most generous patron of poets, musicians, scholars, and artists and it was no surprise that they started flocking to his side. This was the birth of a new cultural renaissance, a period of rich creativity that the fledgling faith of Guru Nanak had not experienced until then. The poet Santok Singh imagines the genesis of this renaissance as the Guru responds to the rich cultural ferment with great encouragement and rich rewards. Chaho kuntanate dur ke nede hoi kis gun bikhe badhere ik to darb lal sa dhare dutiye gur dar san mud dhare pave soj pasare jasko tiyo tiyo aye sunave rasko purab dachan pacham uttar pandit karat prashn day uttar kavita kave banave joi Near and far directions for those blessed with talent untold, dreaming dreams of fame and wealth, come eager to master, behold, Girded up to sing his praise, Paeans, odes, and poems galore, South and north and east and west, Scholars flock to the master's door. Those whose spells with words do weave, Adorn them with essences nine, Dance attendance at his door, Ply him with their words so fine, Of riches worthy he does them deem, Holds them close, in high esteem.
Pyarasing Padam, in his work, Siri Guru Gobind Singh Ji De Darbari Ratan, or the jewels of Guru Gobind Singh's court, writes about the glory of Anandpur. In his introduction, he writes, The lamp of wisdom and scholarship that Guru Gobind Singh lit at Anandpur is unparalleled in Indian history. In addition to being a revered religious leader and a military genius, he was a prolific and accomplished poet and writer. His legendary patronage of writers, poets and scholars resulted in a court studded with gems. Historical sources indicate the presence of 52 poets and 36 writers in his court. As Hindi was the literary language of the northern part of the Indian subcontinent at this time, this was the preferred language of most of the court poets and writers. This ensured the broadest spread of the ideas that Guru Gobind Singh wished to propagate. Guru Gobind Singh's own writings deserve a much more detailed look. In this episode, we will focus on the poets and writers who surrounded him in Anandpur. Pyarasingh Padam draws a sharp contrast between the Guru's court and the courts of other contemporary rulers. The Guru's court in Anandpur became known as a center of both military and literary arts, the former vital in the fight against tyranny, and the latter to inspire and enlighten the common man. It would be useful to compare the Guru's court with that of the Mughals, for superficially it would appear that similar elements were present in both courts. What then was the difference? The Guru's court was concerned with enlightening and uplifting the common man, while other courts were focused on entertainment and the literature of sycophancy and flattery. The primary purpose of art in the other courts was the apotheosis of the ruler. Sosaki is the popular name of Gur Ratanmal, possibly an 18th century work that was supposedly written by Sahib Singh under the direction of Bairam Kamar, who was a member of the Guru's court. It is an esoteric work, mixing history, philosophy, and prophecy, and while its usefulness as an authentic historical source is questionable, it provides colorful descriptions of the intellectual life in the Guru's court. Ek beer sri satguru bethe apne bhai, katha bhai te pandavan pandit bharat aaye, ta piche charcha bhai marana aave koe, kya jane kya hoe taha, hevana hi hoe, tab bole nandalal ji karni kamal jamal, sikh siddhak guru mukh bade, tinko bhalo haval. Sena patakavata kahe gurdar sanate par kare bhaliva buri nit satgur le savar ude rai kav yu kaha jasi kahu ghal tesa fal darm hoega jasa bij visal raval bole jeev ko iswar ans nihar nahi dand apuni surat bichre lob pasar. धर्म सिंह निज धर्म है अपनो इष्ट प्रधान आन धर्म सगले नहफल या मैं बेद प्रमाण 
the Guru's court was in session, and a Hindu scholar was recounting the tale of the Pandavas from the epic the Mahabharat. At the conclusion of the reading, one of the courtiers observed that what happened after death was a mystery, as no one had ever risen from the dead. This prompted several of the poets and scholars to respond, and the discussion turned to life, death, and salvation. Nandalal was of the opinion that the Guru would save all the faithful despite their foibles. Sanapath composed a verse on the spot, echoing Nandalal's sentiments and agreeing that when the faithful beheld the Guru, their errant ways would be mended and they would be saved. Uderai, disagreeing, ventured that one always reaps the fruit of one's actions. Raval was of the opinion that the human soul was godlike, and hence neither good nor evil. But the free will given to man often leads to avarice and greed. Dharam Singh declared that knowing one's true master was the key to salvation, as opposed to the ancient Hindu texts such as the Vedas and the Purans. Nandalal, Senapat, Uderai, Raval, Taram Singh, and countless other poets, writers, and scholars contributed to the rich intellectual life of the Guru's court, and at its center was the Guru himself. Sunasan Bade Sagalako Satguru Uchare Vak Anhad Sadhana Jogako Samta Dhyan Ekank Teen Purakapar Bed Vak Chothe Ne Adhikar Muktam Mukh Vikyako Pamar Chotha Dhar Nij Sarupko Samajke Mukti Chukta An Mekoko Sansar Em Mukh Hojan Ban Viki Vid Sab Bedkar Tiago Sagranik Hed at the end of the debate, the Guru weighed in with his words. The most important thing is to view the world as one and treat everyone with kindness. The Vedas are made out to be the source of great wisdom, yet three castes are entitled to read them, while the fourth is not. Introspection and trying to understand oneself is of much greater importance than reading the so-called sacred texts. For what use are the sacred texts if one reads them and yet does not refrain from evil action? In the rest of this episode, we will learn about some of these poets and scholars who were part of the Guru's court at Anandpur, whose writings inform our understanding of the genius of Guru Gobind Singh.
Bhai Mani Singh was not just one of the foremost intellectuals in the Guru's court, he is remembered as one of the exemplars of personal commitment to the Sikh spiritual tradition. Bhai Mani Singh was one of twelve brothers, all of whom were martyred while defending their faith, as were seven of his ten sons. Bhai Mani Singh was born in 1644 to Nayak Maidas and his wife Madhuri Bai in the village of Alipur. His grandfather Pai Ballu was a beloved Sikh of Guru Hargobind's and had perished in the Battle of Amritsar after dispatching the Mughal commander Murtaza Khan. He was given the name Maniram and as a young man served Guru Har Rai and then Guru Har Krishan, accompanying him to Delhi. He was one of the Sikhs who had declared to the world that the ninth Guru, Guru Teg Bahadur, had been revealed after the passing of Guru Har Krishan. Thus, Pai Mani Singh's family had a rich tradition of serving the Gurus right from the time of Guru Hargobind. After Guru Gobind Singh ascended to the throne of Guru Nanak, one of the first projects he undertook was the creation of copies of the Guru Granth Sahib with expositions. Pai Mani Ram was entrusted with this important task, which he executed rapidly, much to the Guru's satisfaction. In 1699, he was named Divan or Minister by Guru Gobind Singh, an office that he executed with great wisdom and efficiency. His sons, Bachitar Singh and Uday Singh, were among the most celebrated warriors in the Guru's command. In 1699, when Guru Gobind Singh created the Khalsa, which we will address in the ninth episode of Season 2 of the podcast, Paimani Ram was initiated into its ranks and became Paimani Singh. Sri Harmandar Sahib had been in the control of the descendants of Prithi Chand, the older brother of Guru Arjun who had never accepted his authority. During the time of Guru Gobind Singh, Prithi Chand's grandson Harji had oversight of the Harmandar Sahib. When upon his passing, a conflict broke out among the followers of Prithichan known as the Minnas. The Guru sent by Mani Singh along with five Sikhs, a copy of the Guru Granth Sahib and his standard to take charge of the Sri Harmandar Sahib. We will encounter by Mani Singh again in future episodes of the podcast. In this episode, we will focus more on his scholarly contributions. In his work, Shaheed Bilas, Seva Singh writes, Ayu Penti Barakki Mani Singhki A Likhe Likhae Potia Maname Botsa. At the relatively young age of 35, Pai Mani Singh was already known as a scholar of the Guru Granth Sahib and had started writing commentary and expositions on the writings of the Gurus. Though he is not acknowledged as the author, he is associated with several notable literary works. One of the most important among these is the Gyan Ratnavali, which is an expansion of the writings of Sikh scholar Pai Gurdas and his account of Guru Nanak's life. He is also associated with the Pagat Ratnavali, which is also an expansion of one of Pai Gurdas's vars or ballads, which lists prominent Bhagats or devotees. In an earlier episode of the podcast, we have encountered the Gurbilas Patshai Chemi, 
an account of the life of Guru Hargobind. While Bhagat Singh is generally acknowledged as the author, the following lines are notable. Mani Singh Barnan Kari Jaise Katha Sukh Khan So Prasang Barnan Karo Suno Sant Dhardhyan Thus, Pai Mani Singh is credited as the source of the account by the author. Pai Mani Singh's name will forever be connected with the Guru Granth Sahib as we know it today. It is generally accepted that Guru Gobind Singh created the modern version of the Guru Granth Sahib at Damdama Sahib in which the writings of Guru Tegh Bahadur, his father, and the ninth Guru were incorporated. It was none other than Pai Mani Singh who was appointed the Guru's scribe and instructed with the task of preparing the scripture. One of the most significant contributions made by Pai Mani Singh was the compilation of the Dasam Granth, which was done after the passing of Guru Gobind Singh. In the next episode, we will focus on the writings that are attributed to Guru Gobind Singh and the Dasam Granth in general. The turmoil that was to come in the years preceding the passing of Guru Gobind Singh resulted in the loss of much of the literary output of the Guru's court at Anandpur. Mani Singh was determined to salvage whatever was possible. He embarked on a quest to collect whatever copies were available, and compiled what he could find into the Dasam Granth. Mani Singh will always be remembered with gratitude by the Sikh Panth for this crowning accomplishment. Another endeavor of Mani Singh's is less fondly remembered. Pyara Singh Padam rather cryptically observes that a version of the Guru Granth Sahib was prepared by Mani Singh in which he rearranged the contents by author. Dr. Ratan Singh Jaggi, in his work, Paimani Singh, Jeevan Ate Rachna, provides a little more elaboration. Paimani Singh prepared a new version of the Guru Granth Sahib, in which he abandoned the rag-based structure designed by Guru Arjan and arranged the contents by author, also incorporating the Dasam Granth into the same volume. On account of his temerity in departing from the structure put in place by Guru Arjan, he was cursed by the Sikh Panth. Just as he had chopped up the original scripture, his limbs would be chopped into pieces as well. The survival of a particular copy of this version is a tale in itself. It surfaced in the early 1800s in Maharaja Ranjit Singh's time, it was carried off by a Sikh soldier in the looting that followed the Sikh conquest of Multan in 1818. The soldier was subsequently sent to Hyderabad with a small detachment and he carried the book, which he understood to be valuable, with him. His family ended up settling at Hazur Sahib in Nandir, and the book was passed on to his heirs, who lived in the Bunga Jamadar Para Singh. Around 1945, a prominent Sikh, Raja Gulab Singh Sethi, bought the book from Pai Magan Singh, one of the soldier's descendants, and brought it to Lahore. After partition, when Raja Gulab Singh Sethi relocated to Delhi, he brought the book with him. Dr. Ratan Singh Jaggi, who examined the copy, estimates that it was created in the early 1800s. 
Dr. Jaggi tantalizingly refers to eight folios in the book, which are written in a script different from the rest of the work. He refers to it as Khaslippi or special script, an amalgam of Devnagari and Gurmukhi. Dr. Jaggi writes that according to popular tradition, the content of these eight folios was written most likely by Guru Gobind Singh himself. Regardless of the controversy surrounding Pai Mani Singh's rearrangement of the Guru Granth Sahib, he will always be remembered as one of the brightest jewels who adorned Guru Gobind Singh's court at Anandpur. Among the celebrated poets and scholars of the Anandpur court was Senapat, who is remembered primarily as the author of the Gur Soba, a biography of Guru Gobind Singh. This short biography of Senapat is taken from Pyara Singh Padam's Sri Guru Gobind Singh Ji De Darbari Ratan. Senapat, whose real name was Chandrasen, was the son of a scholar named Bal Chand. As a young lad, he received a rigorous education and was sent to study the Sanskrit texts with celebrated scholar Devidas Chandan. Originally from Lahore, Senapat made his way to Anandpur where he immersed himself in both the literary and military life of the Guru's court. It was there that he acquired the name Senapat. One of his early works that brought him much fame was the translation of the Chanakya Niti Shastra into Braj. The Chanakya Niti Shastra is a book of political ethics in the form of a series of aphorisms written by Chanakya or Kautilya around the 3rd century BC. Senapat's Gursoba is considered to be one of the most authentic accounts of Guru Gobind Singh's life by several scholars. In her dissertation titled, In Praise of the Guru, a Translation and Study of Senapati's Gursoba, this is what Ami P. Shah has to say. As one of the earliest contemporary full accounts of the Guru's life, the Sri Gursoba is an invaluable source for understanding the life of Guru Gobind Singh. As a contemporary eyewitness to the Guru's life, Senapati's narrative is an invaluable source of information on a period that witnessed the establishment of the Khalsa by the Guru and the end of the line of human gurus in the Sikh tradition. As an aside, we will return to Amisha's work in much greater detail in episode 9 of season 2, which will focus on the creation of the Khalsa. In my personal opinion, Amisha has done a brilliant job reiterating the unity of thought that runs through the doctrine of all the ten gurus, very effectively debunking the view that several Western scholars have held about a rupture in the fabric of Sikh doctrine and a dramatic shift that occurred in the time of Guru Gobind Singh. Her thesis, of course, is informed by Senapat's Gursoba. In similar vein, this is what Kulvant Singh has to say in his work titled Gursoba. Senapati Sri Gursoba is also considered as one of the primary sources of Sikh history. Composed in the early decades of the 18th century, 
It is also included among the prominent writings of medieval times in Hindi and Punjabi literature. A sizable section of this contemporary literature belonging to India consists of court poetry replete with the excessive adoration of its royal patrons. Very often, its main occupation and concern boils down to a hyper-adulation of the royal master at the cost of neglecting contemporary historical realities and prevailing public concerns. But Senapati, despite being one of the most prominent court poets of Guru Gobind Singh, wrote a highly perceptive treatise on the Sikh religion, Sikh theology, the continuity of Sikh guruship from its beginning to its final culmination in the eternal guruship of its sacred scripture and its bodily manifestation in the Khalsa Commonwealth. Here is Senapat's abbreviated account of the gurus leaving Makhoval, the old name of Guru Teg Bahadur's settlement that would become Anandpur, for Pota. Makhoval Suhavana Satgurko Sthan Lila Anik Anek Bidhi Kotak Karat Bihan Ketar Bars Bhant Eh Bhai Desh Ponte Satgur Gai Jamna Tir Mehl Banvaye Karat Anand Prabhu Manbhaye Salutary Makhoval where the Guru did reside, cosmic play presented of miracles at tide. In this manner years passed by to Ponta then the Guru went, on Jamuna's banks a palace built, in happiness his time was spent. And this is how Senapat describes his departure from Ponta after his victory at Bangani, which was covered in the last episode, and his establishment of Anandpur. Jeet ke khet prabhaan ke ponte kuch ko saaj mangaye li no bhar bardar tiyar kino sabay laad asbab ke kuch di no aan kehlur mein aap tahi samay Anandpur bandh bisram kino sur sigar bedar kair daye reet ye bhaat ke kepati no ketak din ketak baras Tehpur gaye bihaye, santan ki rachha kari, dutan maare odhaye. The Guru triumphant in Potar declares it's time to leave. The baggage train is loaded, laden does the convoy weave. To Kehlur then the Guru goes, Anandpur builds his resting place. Heroes rewarded, cravens shed. Custom new honor disgrace. Many a day and many a year here did the Guru dwell. The saintly ones protected, the wicked sent to hell. Senapath writes about the growing power of Guru Gobind Singh as his court is established and starts referring to Anandpur as Anandgar after the Guru fights the battles of Nimrogar and Kalmot. According to Ami Shah, the shift, however, is simply not semantic, but was deeply informed by significant changes in the material circumstances and resources of the Guru during this time period. The importance of Anandgarh as a triumphant testimony to the Guru's growing power is stressed in Senapati's account. His stature and power in the region grew. After the Battle of Pangani, the building of five forts commenced. 
ਫਤਿਹਗੜ੍ਹ ਹੋਲਗੜ੍ਹ ਲੋਹਗੜ੍ਹ ਅਨੰਦਗੜ੍ਹ ਐਂਡ ਕੇਸਗੜ੍ਹ ਫਾਰਮਿੰਗ ਅ ਸਟ੍ਰੈਟੇਜਿਕ ਪਰਿਮੀਟਰ ਅਰਾਊਂਡ ਅਨੰਦਪੁਰ these forts were architectural testaments to the growing strength of the guru and his community by 1701 the guru had shifted his residential quarters to anandgarh and he would have been there until the final evacuation of anandpur in 1704 while anandgarh would have functioned as the guru's residential quarters and the site of his court kesgarh would have been witness not only to a remarkable literary florescence but an impressive display of material resources and wealth as well senapat unequivocally stresses the growing political power of the guru and the changing nature of his relationship with the powerful rulers of the kingdoms around him fer baseo anandgarh rajanmani an ਬੈਸਾਲੀ ਤੇ ਕੂਚ ਕਰ ਬਸੇ ਪ੍ਰਭੂ ਤੈ ਥਾਨ ਦਰਸਨ ਕਰੇ ਨਿਤ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਖੁਸੀ ਹੋਤ ਨਿਤ ਨੀਤ ਸੇਵਾ ਸਤਗੁਰ ਕੀ ਕਰੇ ਮਨ ਅੰਤਰ ਕਰ ਪ੍ਰੀਤ ਨਗਰ ਨਗਰ ਤੇ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਆਵਤ ਹੈ ਤਹ ਠੌਰ ਦਰਸਨ ਕਰਤ ਪ੍ਰਭ ਪੁਰਖ ਕੋ ਭ੍ਰਮ ਰਹਿਤ ਨਹੀਂ ਔਰ ਨਿਕਟ ਗਾਂਵ ਜੇਤੇ ਵਸੈ ਲੈ ਖਾਲਸੇ ਜੀਤ ਕੇਤਕ ਦਿਨ ਅਰਦੋਏ ਬਰਸ yeah but the bhay batit once more he dwells in anandgarh the kings before him bow marched he from baisali back home he is now with joy behold the khalsar their guru and rejoice eagerly they serve him with love and by choice from far and wide the faithful are flocking to his door and their eyes behold him delusions doubts forswore villages in the vicinity the khalsa made their own pass by thus have years to in this way time has flown amisha takes issue with other scholars who have tried to emphasize the spiritual aspects of guru gobind singh's court while downplaying this growing temporal power and the splendor of his court In contrast to this description of the guru's growing material resources and political stature among his contemporaries scholars have continued to question the form and content of the guru's court in his recent publication the darbar of the sikh gurus the court of god in the world of men lewis fenick traces the development of the court of the gurus over time and from the outset questions whether references to the sikh court are to be understood in figurative or literal terms according to fenix argument although the 10th guru possessed a court quote albeit a limited one what ultimately differentiated the guru's court from the mughal emperors was not its material size and scope but its spiritual basis reading the court through a spiritual rather than a material that is political lens fenick underscores the difference between the two courts as follows at the center of the sikh court was the one true spiritual king of the universe an emperor who was not so concerned with impressing his courtiers of the magnitude of his imperial prestige and authority but rather the magnificence of the divine 
One of the limitations of such an understanding is that it views the concerns of Guru Gobind Singh as fundamentally spiritual and by extension in opposition to the political. If the court is seen as merely symbolic or essentially spiritual, then all of its actions appear somewhat superficial or hollow. If, as Fennec argues, the primary purpose of the Guru's darbar or court was spiritual, then we are left in the awkward position of having to explain the material body of evidence that was present at the Anandpur court. Given the layers of security around Anandpur, the presence of a standing army, the weaponry, the elephant, the horses, the flag, the seal, the official stationery, the issuing of hukumname or edicts, Fennec's position that the Guru's Tarbar reflected the concerns of a spiritual king needs modification. The Guru's residence was in the center of Anandpur, and it is possible to imagine a situation in which the Guru's residential courts and court were fully integrated into the life of the city. In other words, the Guru was not a remote figure sitting at a distance from the community, but rather was physically integrated into the activities of both the court and the city. Far from a conception of the Guru as a solely spiritual leader, the court of Guru Gobind Singh would have been a mise-en-scene against which the affairs of state and community unfolded. Within this context, then, how can we understand the sovereignty of the Sikh community at Anandpur? As the Guru to the Sikh community, the religious role played by the Guru is indisputable. In addition to that position, however, the Guru also stood at the center of a vast network of relationships spanning scribes and poets, a professional army and mercenaries, accountants and bookkeepers, family members and retainers, and political enemies and allies. He was not simply a symbol of authority in Anandpur, but a multipotent source of both political and religious authority. If we neglect to fully take stock of the material evidence from Anandpur, then we are left with the depoliticized and decontextualized items that represent nothing more than a mimicry of Mughal forms and or a set of non-ideological artifacts that represent the cultural heritage of the Sikh tradition. Amisha's work in my eyes is invaluable and we will return to it again in episode 9 of season 2 when we consider the creation of the Khalsa. For now, I would urge my listeners to seek out her dissertation and read it. It is a fabulous starting point for a much-needed discussion about Sikh identity and the meaning of sovereignty in the Sikh context.
It is said that once Guru Gobind Singh commanded all his courtiers at Anandpur to arm themselves and decreed that none should appear at court without a sword. Obediently, all of his courtiers, including poets and scholars, promptly strapped on swords. As they entered the court armed, the Guru looked upon them with much satisfaction until his gaze fell on one man. Addressing him with a smile, the Guru said, What was the need for you to strap on a sword? You are already armed with your pen. You need not worry. I have girded myself with a sword in your stead. The man that the Guru addressed with such affection was named by Nandalal Goya. Among all the poets and scholars in the Guru's court, there was none more accomplished than Pai Nandalal. To this day, there are only two individuals other than the contributors to the Guru Granth Sahib and Guru Gobind Singh, whose writings are considered sacred in the Sikh tradition and are sung in Gurdwaras. The first is Pai Gurdas, the great Sikh scholar who was Guru Arjan's scribe during the compilation of the Guru Granth Sahib. The second is none other than Pai Nandalal. The Sikh Rehat Maryada or Code of Conduct explicitly mentions that it is appropriate to sing compositions by Pai Gurdas and Pai Nandalal as a part of Sikh religious practice. Pai Nandalal was born in 1633. His father, Munshi Chajju Ram, was in the employ of Dara Shiko, the erudite and highly tolerant son of the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan. When Dara Shiko was sent as an administrator to the state of Ghazni in modern-day Afghanistan, Chajuram accompanied him with his family. Pai Nandalal's early years were spent in Ghazni, where he immersed himself in Persian and Arabic studies. When his father passed away in 1652, Nandalal returned to his ancestral home in Multan, in a locality known as Agapur. He sought employment with Vasaf Khan, the governor of Multan, as his munshi or clerk, and rapidly progressed to become his senior administrator. Even though he was non-Muslim, his talent was recognized and he rose to become the assistant governor of Multan. Around 1695, Nandalal entered the employ of Prince Muazzam, the governor of Agra, and the son of the Emperor Aurangzeb as his chief clerk. The Emperor Aurangzeb often had verses from the Qur'an read at his court in Delhi and invited Islamic scholars to interpret them. On one occasion, the Emperor was highly dissatisfied with all the interpretations of a particular verse that were offered by scholars in his court. Prince Muazzam was at court and asked for some time to get the verse interpreted. On his return to Agra, he asked by Nandalal for an interpretation and sent it to Aurangzeb, who was absolutely delighted. When he learned from Moazam that the scholar who had interpreted the verse was a Hindu, the emperor was much chagrined. He decreed that Nandalal be brought into the fold of Islam. Nandalal decided it was time to flee. Pai Veer Singh, in his work Kalgitar Chamatkar, writes that Nandalal had already visited Guru Gobind Singh's court at Anandpur before his flight, 
but I have not found a reference to that meeting in any other source. Clearly, he was aware of the Guru's court at Anandpur, which was known as a place of refuge that no one was ever turned away from. It was to Anandpur that Nandalal went from Agra. It was no surprise that a scholar of Nandalal's stature would be welcomed with open arms. Very quickly, he endeared himself to the Guru because of his talent and his devotion. According to the Sosaki, the Guru declared that any question the congregation had for him may be answered by Nandalal. It was not just because of his scholarship that Nandalal was loved by the Guru. He became known as one of the Guru's exemplary Sikhs. The leading courtiers were often given responsibility for organizing the Langar, Guru Nanak's community kitchen, and it is said that none served more diligently or organized the langar more efficiently than Pai Nandalal. Pai Nandalal is remembered today as a top-notch poet whose poetry is on par with some of the best work of his time in Persian. There is general consensus that while Pai Nandalal's writings are deeply rooted in Sikh sensibilities, he was deeply influenced by Sufi thought. According to Pyara Singh Padam, many of his ghazals are responses to those by the Sufi master Hafiz Shirazi, while others echo the work of Maulana Rumi. His most celebrated work is the Divan Goya, a collection of 61 ghazals, 19 rubaiyat or quatrains, and 6 abiyat or couplets, the Ghazal is a poem that is made up of a series of verses that follows a rhyme scheme. Its origin can be traced back to 7th century Persian poetry, and it is often a poetic expression of love, separation, or pain. The Zindagi Nama, or the Book of Life, is a mansavi, another form of poetry that consists of a series of 510 rhyming couplets. It is also in Persian and elucidates several aspects of the Sikh tradition. Bainandalal wrote this work originally titled Bandagi Nama or the Book of Spiritual Devotion upon his arrival at Anandpur Sahib and presented it to Guru Gobind Singh. The Guru was so pleased with the work that he changed its name to Zindagi Nama. Divan Goya and Zindagi Nama are the two most prominent works of Pai Nandalal. Other works by Pai Nandalal include the Ganjanama, the Jyot Bigas, the Rahatnama or Code of Conduct, and the Tankhanama or the Code of Discipline. The Ganjanama is a panegyric work written in Persian. It has 60 verses written in praise of the 10 Gurus. The bulk of the work is focused on Guru Gobind Singh. The Jyot Bigas is also a panegyric work in two parts, one in Punjabi and the other in Persian. The Rahatnamba and the Tankhanamba are both in the form of a dialogue between Guru Gobind Singh and Pai Nandalal. We will return to them in episode 9 of season 2 when we focus on the creation of the Khalsa. It would be a travesty to not provide a flavor of Pai Nandalal Goya's sublime poetry, here is the second ghazal from Divan Goya. 
دین دنیا درکمند آفری رخسار ما ہر دو عالم قیمت یختار موئے یار ما مان میں آ ریم تاب گمزے مغیان او یک نگاہ ضاف زائش بس بود درکار ما گاہ صوفی گاہ زاہد گاہ کلندر می سود رنگ رائے مختلف دارد بتے ایار ما قدر لالے او بجج آشک تا داند ہیچ کس قیمت یا کوت داند چشم گوہر بار ما ہر نفس گویا بیادے نرگسے مخمور او باد ہائے شوق میں نوشد دلے رخسار ما جس کھاویات Not being adept at Persian, I have translated this ghazal from two Punjabi translations of the original by Dr. Ganda Singh and Principal Ganga Singh. My very faith and actions all, O beauteous one, are in your thrall, precious more than every realm, off your hair a single strand. From your eyes a glance sidelong, its splendor almost hard to bear. My life extended and renewed, what more than this can I demand? Now a mystic hermit now, now a dervish full of life, playful changeling myriad forms, never dull bestilled you stand. Precious jewels, they are your lips, alone your lover knows their worth, the price of this garnet sublime my tearful eye does understand oh goya every breath of mine enraptured by your limpid eyes from their cups my fill i drink this heady wine of love so grand The Story of the Six is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of the poem Kultar's Mime, which was adapted for the stage and tells the story of the massacre of the Six in Delhi in 1984. His second book, The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, set in the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, was recently published. Both are available on Amazon. The Story of the Six is produced by Almast Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Aftar Singh. This episode features a rendition of Rag Kalavati on Chennai by Pandit Salesh Bhagwat. The magnificent rendition of Bhai Nandalal's Ghazal is by Bhai Dadam Singh Zakmi and his ensemble. Season 2 of The Story of the Six is sponsored by the Chardi Kala Foundation, the Sawani Family Foundation, and Manpreet Kaur and Ishdeep Singh. I'm co-producer and audio engineer, Erica Wong. In the next episode of The Story of the Six, The Dasam Granth, the book of the 10th master, is completed. In addition to the devotional writings of Guru Gobind Singh, it contains translations of heroic Hindu epics from Sanskrit to Braj, designed to inspire a population beaten down by centuries of oppression. Thank you for joining us.